You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Um, well, welcome. It's my great pleasure to introduce you all today to Stefan Lindesbacher. Um, Stefan holds a prestigious mobility grant from the Swiss National Science Foundation, and he's held this grant since December, 19, uh, December 2016. And it has brought him all places, near and far, Moscow, Tbilisi, Kiev, Tashkent, Regensburg, Germany, and last but not least, well, I don't know if this is last. I think there's one more stop afterwards, right? Um, <laughs> that's home. <laughs> All right, and Madison, Wisconsin. Um, Stefan received his PhD from the Historical Department of the University of Bern in 2011. He wrote his first dissertation, and according to the, the system there, this is <coughs> what he's working on now, on the, on the pre-revolutionary Russian radical movement, pro- focusing on the figures of Vera Zasulich and Vera Finger. Um, his current book project, um, which is very exciting, looks at the establishment and the regulation of the national territories of the early Soviet Union, basically looking at borders, border conflict, border resolution, and it's based on very deep archival research that he's done over the past year and a half. Um, he looks at case studies from the Ukrainian-Russian border, the Armenian-Azerbaijani border, and the Uzbek-Kazakh border. Um, all of you, please get in touch with him. Um, he has a lot to share, and he'll share some of that today in his talk. When Nationalism Meets Soviet Modernization. Um, I hope you help me welcome him here for today and for the whole semester. Thanks, Francine. Thanks to everyone of you. To begin, um, Nomads posed a challenge in the forming national states and modern economies in general, uh, and to Soviet modernization in particular. Like in Central Asia, nomads were an important part of the rural economy in the South Caucasus for centuries. The Soviet policies that led to the virtual extinction of the nomads in Central Asia and uh, in the early 1930s are well explored. I mention here only the contributions by Marco Putino, Robert Kindler, Botakoska Simbekova, or Sergei Abashin. Further, there are are quite a lot of books and research on the forced collectivization at, in the same time, focusing particularly um, on Ukraine. Um, and I hereby point to the recent but controversial book by Anne Applebaum mm-hmm. called uh, Red Famine. However, it is hard to find any information uh, what happened at the same time in the South Caucasus. Uh, there, too, the number of nomads dropped considerably, considerably, and uh, peasants were forced to join collective farms. But in contrast to other regions, there were not that many people killed, uh, and comparably few died because of hunger. This is, I would like to uh, focus on this particular case study. But first, let me clarify uh, my vocabulary. Um, we will talk about the South Caucasus, that's this region here, uh, in the south of the main Caucasus mountains between the Black Sea and the, Cas- uh, the Caspian Sea. And uh, this region was populated uh, mainly by three ethnic groups, uh, Georgians, Armenians, 
and uh, Turkish-speaking Muslims. Azerbaijan at this time was only a ge geographical term. Uh, only later it became the name of a nationality. But in the 20s, um, we, um, Azerbaijan or Azerbaijani is only a reference uh, to a geographical uh, territory. And today we have in this region three states, Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan. But uh, now we will go back um, to the 1920s. What do I have in mind when I will talk about nomads and semi-nomads? <coughs> Um, in the original um, documents, they are called Kochevniki or Palukochevniki. And these people were traveling every year together with their flocks and cattle from winter pastures in the flatlands uh, to summer pastures in the mountains. Whereas nomads changed between summer and winter pasture without fixed place of settlement, Semi-nomads changed between their settlements near the winter pasture uh, to the summer pasture. In the mid-1920s, the share of full nomads was quite small. They counted only about 60,000 in a region with a population of about 6 million. So that's about a percent. Um, most of these nomads were Turkish-speaking Muslims wandering between Azerbaijan and Armenia. However, more than a third of the population of Azerbaijan, that are, are about 800,000 people, were considered semi-nomads. Here, uh, this map I will present some more times. Um, so, um, for example, semi-nomads were traveling from this region here, Kazakh or Taouz, uh, to the region Delijan here or from Karabakh here to Zangezur here. I will come back to this um, ethnographical map. So these dots here and uh, fields are more or less imaginary because the population at this time was always shifting from winter to summertime. So it's, we can draw such maps, but they are only partially true because the population at this time was more mobile. So, I go back now, a little bit before 1917, Russian imperial rule had not much interfered with such forms of rural economy, except for taxation, of course. They wanted to extract some taxes. However, the Tsarist state already had a certain taxonomy for its population, as it coined some parts civilized or uncivilized. The scheme, uh, this scheme perceived Christians, like Georgians or Armenians as more civilized, whereas it classified Muslims as less civilized. The non-sedentary Muslim population of the South Caucasus found itself at the bottom of this ethno-national hierarchy. Depleted from its religious normativity, the Bolshevik and Soviet ethnographers later adopted this scheme. Due to their long cultural and political history, Georgians and Armenians, other than Azerbaijani Turks, counted as advanced nations like the Russians, Jews, or Germans. In the eyes of the Soviet experts, Muslim nomads and semi-nomads <coughs> appeared as particularly backward. So, now let me shortly explain what I mean by Soviet modernization. I took this term in the uh, title. Uh, within this term, I subsume the Bolsheviks' plans for a normal encompassing social normalization, economic rationalization, and planned economic development. 
Uh, these policies not only condoned, but later also demanded the destruction um, of uh, century-old economic practices as a historical necessity. What I want to show in my presentation is how these plans for a Soviet modernization uh, merged with a clearly, in our case here, Armenian nationalist demand uh, for a territorial homogeneity. So, uh, now I have to clarify some other terms. Uh, the three South Caucasian republics were merged in 1922 uh, to 1936 within the Transcaucasian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic. Uh, I can calm you down. Uh, I will further use uh, the short version, TSFSR, uh, which uh, was like the RSFSR, part of the USSR. Tbilisi, or at this time Tiflis, was the capital of the TSFSR. The archival documents of the Transcaucasian state and party institutions are stored now in the Georgian archives in Tbilisi. In the last year, I had the chance to study them and provide, and they now provide the base for my following arguments. On the one side, I have looked into the documents of the Communist Party's Transcaucasian Regional Committee. Hereafter, I will call it Zakraikom. So that's uh, the party leadership in the South Caucasus. And the other side, I have explored the files of the Transcaucasian Central Executive Committee, or hereafter, ZAKTZIK. It's uh, shorter in this, uh, it's um, quicker in this form. Uh, it is the main state institution of the Transcaucasian Federation. And one last technical remark. When I further use the term federal, I refer to the institutions of the TSFSR. So, um, on the Federation, when I use the term Republican, I will refer to the member states of the TSFSR. So, after this quite long introduction, I would like to develop my argument in five steps. After a short survey over the South Caucasus under early Soviet rule in the 1920s, I will explore the so-called pasture issue, first in its national, then in its political dimension. Subsequently, <coughs> I will turn to the plans for, of Soviet modernization and the question why they um, suddenly turned in 1928-29 into a violent anti-Norman campaign that found its resonance within the nationalist policy from the Armenian side. So let's start. The South Caucasus was somehow the odd one out in the whole Soviet state. Compared to most other Soviet regions, nationally perceived dichotomies had already affected the everyday life. This was due to the starting industrialization and increasing urbanization uh, under late Tsarist rule. Particularly Baku, a center of the global oil industry, formed a vibrant hotbed of modernity uh, in the end of the 19th century. Reinforced during the First World War and the Civil War, uh, the dichotomies, particularly between Armenian and Muslim communities, crystallized not only in urban centers, but only sp also spread to rural areas. In 1920-21, uh, the Soviet state conquered the South Caucasian republics, particularly due to its need for the Baku oil here. Because um, at this time, in the 1920s, one of the uh, biggest known 
oil reservoir of the world was in this region here, and uh, the Soviet state was in a desperate need for fuel. And these oil fields could only be efficiently exploited um, when the lines of transport and shipment, like the Batumi, Baku-Batumi railway here, were under Soviet control too. After the occupation, the Bolsheviks tried to end the violence between the different ethnic communities. Uh, and the Soviet state also accepted the existence of national defined republics as such. Hence, it was immediately confronted with challenges. These three republics here, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, um, had, uh, did not have any defined borders. The Kaf Bureau, the predecessor of the Sakraikom, the regional uh, party leadership, made only one large-scale decision in the uh, border issue, as it attached uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, that was and is mostly populated by Armenians, um, as it attached this region to Azerbaijan. Uh, the exact reasons for this decision, decision remain uh, still unclear, but economic considerations may have turned the balance because um, you can more easily um, get to uh, Stepanakert, uh, the main town of Karabakh or Shusha at this time, uh, from Baku, then from Yerevan, because uh, the streets and roads are, were better, um, uh, in a better shape uh, in this time. And the Armenian representatives in vain tried to revise this uh, in their opinion fatal decision. <clears throat> all, all other border issues received only a provisional solution. They were to be solved within the TSFSR, the federal structures. The Armenian Bolsheviks on their side had to face particular challenges. Among the South Caucasian republics, Armenia was the smallest and economically weakest one and had the lowest number of inhabitants. Despite these facts, it had to deal with uh, many refugees arriving from the former Ottoman Empire as a consequence of the genocide. The absolute number of 50,000 Armenian refugees settling in Soviet Armenia after 1921 may not seem high in absolute numbers, but it was a considerable, considerable challenge for a country in ruins with about 900,000 inhabitants in 1926. However, it would be inappropriate to perceive Armenia and Armenians as marginalized. Within the Soviet frame, uh, <clears throat> they had a comparable uh, much influence compared to their share in the population. Armenians were overrepresented in the federal institutions, whereas Turks uh, were severely underrepresented. Now, from this general information, let's go uh, to the pasture issue. Um, the Soviet officials defined as pasture issue the question of how the distribution of land between uh, the non-sedentary and sedentary population should take place. This pasture issue absorbed a lot of federal resources and kept spoiling the uh, relations between Armenian and the Azerbaijani republics. Nomads and semi-nomads from Azerbaijan used about 1,000 square kilometers, that are about 360 square miles, um, 
of summer pastures in Armenia. That is about a tenth of all summer pastures in Armenia. Even though there was no more right to land property, these issues kept troubling the Soviet administration um, even more as agriculture and land distribution uh, had been a realm of the republics. The federal authorities could only arbitrate. And now, um, despite all these struggles uh, between the peasants and nomads and semi-nomads, there were also forms of peaceful interaction coexistence. Nomads and peasants were trading products like milk uh, and corn or were renting and leasing land to each other. Though uh, such practices had been common for centuries, um, they fundamentally challenged the Soviet state's claim to regulate land distribution. First, the Soviet functionaries tolerated such practices of land leasing and renting, but then they more and more in the 20s intervened. In doing so, they not only criminalized traditional trades, but also traditional ways of conflict solution between the communities. The relations between the Muslim nomads and the Armenian institutions were also problematic as the influx of Armenian refugees to Soviet Armenia further contributed to the discrimination of Muslim nomads in preference of Armenian settlers um, by Armenian institutions. As for instance, the chairman of the executive committee in Jusha, that's here in Azerbaijan, uh, complained to his superiors about the behavior of uh, the Armenian institutions. I quote, since a long time ago, the nomad population of Shusha region had been wandering with its flocks to the summer pastures. Uh, these summer pastures belonged to the inhabitants of uh, Shusha, but the authorities of Sangesur, that's the region here, um, consider nowadays the summer pastures theirs. They also introduced a charge for using the pasture, and they are extracting unbearable taxes from them. The nomads protest against such acts from the authorities of Sangesur. Ending quote. Unwillingly, the Communist Party had to step in in this difficult task. In November 1922, the Zakracom, the leading uh, party body, ordered a settlement in favor of the nomads. In short, the nomads should be allowed to use the pastures in Armenia. The Azerbaijani institutions. Uh, not the Armenian ones, should take care of them. With the constant of uh, state institutions, peasants and nomads should use the nationalized land and woods um, that they had using before the war. Thereby, the federal authorities tried to institutionalize settlement processes for such and other cross-border issues. But at the same time, they had to deal with resilience from both republics. For instance, the Armenian um, People's Commissariat of Interior complained about the behavior of the Azerbaijani nomads and their institution in the Kazakh Delijan region. That's here. In a report um, from 1924, um, they wrote, I quote, the Muslim nomads on their way to the summer pasture have not observed a single rule even though they promised to fulfill all points of, an agree of the agreement. Not a single policeman from the Kazakh province, that's from here, um, 
escorted the nomads uh, to Delijan here. Uh, not a single nomad took the road we agreed upon. They took arbitrarily the roads uh, to their pastures, and they let uh, their cattle graze wherever they liked. End quote. Facing damages caused uh, by nomads and semi-nomads, Armen Armenian peasants and institutions went to court. However, uh, the federal institutions, uh, which were at the top of the juridical system, uh, met these claims quite critically. Shota Palavandishvili, now I was able to pronounce it correctly, it's a Georgian name, <laughs> a high-ranking agitator at the Sakraikon, concluded in 1928 about such uh, claims in court practice. I quote, It used to happen that uh, local peasants were demanding hundreds of rubles uh, for their material losses. However, when the judges were asking for details, the complainants were withdrawing their, these claims. This happened and still happens mostly because the local peasants want to make profit. The reports of the losses were often made unilaterally without the participation of the accused or their representatives. The judges uh, stood generally on the side of the complainants, as the local and their residents. Ending quote. Considering also the aspect that the nomads and semi-nomads were often illiterate and unfamiliar with juridical formal procedures, Kalavandishvili uh, reports uh, gives, uh, gives a hint uh, that the, um, the Armenian peasants could potentially use the state institution and the court system to feather their own nest. During the 1920s, the disputes around the summer pastures continued, even though the Republican federal institutions were presenting settlements and solutions, the nomads and also uh, the peasants did not much care about this. They kept using their ancestral grounds as before. The, Armenians, uh, the Armenian institution, uh, institutions tried to redistribute the pasture, and no, no wonder this led to severe conflicts on the ground. In such cases, field surveyors and emissaries from Tiflis had to arbitrate uh, between all sides. So, I'm coming now from the national dimension to the political dimension of this pasture issue. Because within the TSFSR, uh, this pasture issue was closely related uh, with the issue of, of how to define the borders between the republics. The lack of territorial clarity fueled conflicts, particularly between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Sergei Voshinsky, a party secretary of the province uh, Borchalo, that's in the south of um, Georgia, actually in the re region where all the borders of the three uh, republics meet, wrote, um, experienced difficulties and wrote a letter to the Zakraikom complaining the situation. <clears throat> and uh, I can show you a map of this region from 1925 uh, and here <coughs> the functionaries in uh, Tiflis noted all the uh, borders that were unclear at this time between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan, Georgia and Armenia, and Georgia and Azerbaijan. So uh, that's uh, the situation um, uh, Sergei Voshinsky was complaining about. I quote, 
the quarrels grow from day to day because the borders between the districts are in fact beelines. This means that uh, these lines link one spot to another only on paper. They have never been exactly defined on the spot. They also raised doubts and misunderstanding in the exploitation of the forests and pastures that are in the border area between the republics. Generally, uh, they were the reason for a plenty of misunderstandings between the representatives of the state and the people in the border uh, region and villages. Ending quote. Let me explain one thing. Uh, the term misunderstanding served in the Soviet context also as a euphemism uh, for incidents of ethnic violence. Some of these misunderstandings led even to armed conflicts uh, among the local population. Voshinsky therefore proposed something that could count as a standard solution. Um, all interested parties should be, uh, build bilateral commissions. Hereby, field surveyors gained an important role in this complex process of negotiation between all sides. Party and state activists, together with uh, these experts, should find feasible settlements. Let me now give you an example. I take a commission um, that was quite unique, as it uh, failed completely. However, it provides us with a typical challenge every commission um, at this time in this region, had, uh, or every border commission in this time in this region, had to deal with. Our commission should study and find a solution for the pastures of Shinik Ayrum, that's this region here, uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan in, this, in September 1925. The commission was led by the secretary of the Zakzik, um, Yosif Ananov. Representatives of Armenia and Azerbaijan, Gritsenko and Ishkramov, joined him. Two field surveyors, Khaustov and Senko, uh, escorted the three. In Shinik Ayrum, sedentary Armenian uh, and semi-nomad Turk Muslim villages uh, were competing for rights to use pastures um, and fields. The commission's members should decide if certain territories that were at this time under Armenian jurisdiction but used by Azerbaijani semi-nomads were to be transferred to Azerbaijan. After the first week of work, a severe dispute uh, between the field surveyor Khaustov and the chairman Onanov broke out. This was partly due to the fact that it was not clear if the field surveyors should have a decisive voice in the commission. Uh, Onanov tried to exclude them. Khaustov, uh, however, did not accept this. Then Onanov complained how slowly Khaustov was working with his surveil, uh, surveillance. Um, and the latter replied that this was no wonder due to the bad equipment um, and the low budget. Uh, up to this point, the quarrel was more or less professional, but then it came, became personal and in the Soviet context also political. Onanov later reported to his superiors. Khaustov began to scream in front of a peasant crowd and Armenian as well as a Bajorani policeman. He told them quite clearly that our commission was an extraordinary troika that is one-sided. Its aim was to expel the Muslim population from their ancestral grounds and give these territories to Armenians. Ending quote. Of course, it's not clear what really happened on the spot and which words were chosen. Nevertheless, Ananov's report gives us a hint that the peasants could be easily mobilized 
by this issue. They perceived delimit delimitation as a question about who will get access to certain resources in the future. Kaustoff, as an experienced party member, wrote a counter-report, uh, as it is uh, um, quite usual in the Soviet context. Um, in this counter-report, he underlined that Ananov was incompetent and clearly in favor of the Armenian side. Um, Ananov even planned to draw the borders without going to the spots and grounds at stake. And the consequence was that uh, this commission bitterly failed due to inner power, uh, power struggles, but it also uh, highlights general challenges. Not only personal antagonisms could lead to failure, but also protests by locals. Last but not least, the experts uh, could uh, make errors by their measurements, or the commission could decide something without deeper knowledge of the area, um, which could produce further misunderstandings. In the consequence, uh, the Armenian-Azerbaijani border in the north and also in the south, uh, especially also in Shinikairum, uh, remained unsolved, and the clashes between the border communities continued. The only real outcome from this whole commission uh, was that the Zakzik fired on and off. And also in the following years, the Armenia-Azerbaijani border remained a patchwork. In the end, there were only virtual points linked with B-lines. This interim solution was confirmed during the dissolution of the TSFSR in 1936. In other, other words, the border marked on Soviet maps between Armenia and Azerbaijan was never comprehensively surveilled. Um, and this precarious situation endured until 1991. So now let me come from the borders again to the problem of Soviet modernization. When the perspective of a world revolution had faded away, the Bolshevik leadership decided to increase the development of the Soviet economy in order to build the material base for a Soviet, uh, socialist society in one country. The nomads appeared as an obstacle to this project. However, in the mid-1920s, the Bolsheviks in the South Caucasus had a long-term perspective. In 1924, Saktsik proclaimed that um, nomadism was historically doomed, but in this proclamation, it was included that this is a long-term perspective. And uh, first also, the party planned to mobilize and get in contact with uh, the nomads and semi-nomads, send some um, agitators and party members to the field in order to get access to these people. Uh, to these people. All these uh, trials to get co in contact with uh, the nomads mostly bitterly failed. Nevertheless, they tried it uh, from year to year, but uh, in the end of the 1920s, uh, Shorta Palavandishvili, um, again the party activist at the Zakrai Com, um, uh, reported to his um, supervisors deeply disappointed about the uh, nomads and the successes of propaganda among them. I quote, from the political perspective, the nomads as such are completely <coughs> undeveloped. They appear as a dark crowd. Most of them are illiterate, and in personal conversations, I have assured myself that they are not interested in anything, 
and anyone except their own business, ending quote. Such indifference towards Soviet project became more and more dangerous in the end of the 1920s. As between uh, 1928 and 1932, an all-encompassing cultural revolution originating within the party and state apparatus shattered all plans how to achieve Soviet modernization. I use here Sheila Fitzpatrick's basic concept in the way Matthew Paine adopted it to the economic field in his book on Stalin's Railroad. Paine thereby defined cultural revolution as a form of, I quote, uh, violent and transformative class war which ran its course during the first five years plan, end quote. What I, uh, do I mean with this? Um, all existing plans and ideas within the party and state apparatus were to be reconsidered and radicalized under the aspect of an accelerating Soviet project. In the South Caucasus, this was the crucial tipping factor that let nationalist arguments merge with the idea of an accelerated Soviet modernization into a violent political practice. Thus, the nomads and semi-nomads evolved from obstacles to enemies. The party perceived the nomads now, uh, now as solely dominated by kulaks, that is, rich peasants. Like uh, the term bourgeois uh, or bourgeois, in the urban context, kulak was a crucial term uh, for, in the Soviet ideological frame to mark the enemy in the rural areas. Such, um, such a term was, uh, or the term in itself was abstract and void, uh, so the people in power could fill it with random content to ostracize certain individuals and groups perceived as adversaries. In the Soviet South Caucasus, uh, the anti-nomad campaigns reached a first climax in 1930. It proved to be a disastrous year for transhuman economies in the TSFSR and all over the Union, of course. In February 1930, the Azerbaijani OKPU initiated a massive strike against the Kulaks. It arrested and deported more than 1,000 Kulaks together with their families. After these open repressions, party activists encouraged the remaining uh, nomads and semi-nomads, uh, they considered them as Vietniki and Srednaki, middle and uh, poor peasants, uh, to, cho uh, to join the collective farms. At the same time, clashes between migranting nomads and semi-nomads um, and the newly formed Armenian collective farms occurred. Soviet Armenia claimed uh, now summer pastures for Armenian collectives only. However, the nomads did not accept these unilateral decisions. This, together with the resentment of uh, to collectivization, led to an open revolt in the rural areas. In the villages, many communist propagandists uh, were murdered. In spring 1930, the collectivization campaign uh, brought South Caucasus like other regions of the Soviet Union, at the edge of a civil war. The regime answered with brutal mass repressions. In this troubling situation, also Stalin intervened against uh, a collectivization campaign that ran the risk to slip out of the party's hand. He warned in March 1930 that some activists may, dizzy, uh, may be uh, dizzy with success. 
But this change of tone at the top of the party in Moscow had no immediate effects in favor of the nomads or peasants in the South Caucasus. In the opposite, the anti-nomad policy was intensified. The Armenian government decisively supported initiatives from the Armenian collective farms in 1930 and 1931. However, especially the Azerbaijani government also tried to mobilize the federal institutions in order to protect their nomads. In the end, the Zaktsik allowed the nomads and semi-nomads to use um, the pastures in Armenia uh, for one last time in 1932. The Zakrai also agreed to liquidate nomadism as such. In contrast to the barely literate nomads and semi-nomads, the Armenian activists could make full use of the state and party institutions um, for their own ultimately nationalist goals of spatial homogeneity. Like in the other parts of the Union, forced collectivization proved to be a disaster for cattle breeding. Uh, nomads and semi-nomads preferred to kill or sell their cattle or flocks be before joining any kolkhoz or sovkhoz. When some of them joined the collectives with their cattle uh, and flocks, um, the functionary and activists had to face severe challenges because uh, the collectives um, were lacking in uh, stables, fathers, and veterinary attention. So, also, a lot of animals were dying um, because of uh, neglecting care in the collective farms. And in the Azerbaijani regions of Kazakh and Taos, here and here, um, the whole economic system in the rural area was uh, changed from the scratch. The former semi-nomads uh, should now work in newly built um, collective farms and grow cotton. And their housing appeared a huge problem as the state institutions had not uh, that much material to uh, build the houses necessary um, for these people. Uh, the result was not only nomads, uh, that not only nomads and semi-nomads, but also peasants fled from the deplorable situation in the rural areas to booming towns, mostly Baku, Yerevan, and Tiflis. In the Armenian and Azerbaijani border region. Only between 1930 and 1934, uh, more than 12,000 households were abandoned. That means more or less that 100,000 people uh, left this area. <clears throat> Turkish-speaking people also tried to cross the border to Turkey in order to leave the Soviet nightmare. In the mid-1930s, Laurenti Beria established himself as a dominant figure within the TSFSR. Between 1932 and 1937, he was the first secretary of the Zakrai.com and changed the collectivization policy once again. In, re in a report to Stalin in November 1934, he underlined that due to the natural uh, conditions, the collectivization will take a longer time in the South Caucasus. With this political stance, Beria went conform with Stalin's dizzy with success line. The prototype of a reckless careerist, um, Beria blamed his predecessor for the catastrophic results. And in this uh, frame of a, of a seemingly more tolerant policy, it was possible uh, for people from Azerbaijan to rent a summer pasture in Armenia again. However, they had to follow now uh, certain bureaucratic procedures which were quite difficult to manage for illiterate people. So um, the number of uh, semi-nomads and particularly nomads um, dropped to, from, uh, let's say, 800, 
thousand at the beginning to one hundred thousand in the mid thirties. Many of them uh, left for the booming towns um, or had to join uh, cotton cohorses, um, escaped to Turkey, or were sent to the Gulag. From the mid 1930s, transhumans, that is a um, uh, pastoral economy uh, uh, changing between summer and winter pastures, uh, kept being but a marginal part of the rural economy in the South Caucasus. It continued, but on a uh, much lower level. Uh, the party and state institutions intentionally neglected um, it as they still considered it as historically doomed. So now let me conclude. Um, the traditional transhuman forms of economy were not only challenged by Soviet modernization, but also by nationalist claims. There was less and less space for people who appeared resilient to uh, or against forms of normalization, social control, and enhanced resource ex extraction. The impulses from the Cultural Revolution let the ideas of Soviet modernization merge with the Armenian nationalist goal of spatial homogeneity, together into a forceful strike against the non-sedentary population. In contrast to mostly illiterate nomads and semi-nomads, the Armenian activists could profit from their privileged position uh, within the Transcaucasian party and state institutions. The result was a sort of ethnic cleansing of the summer pastures in Armenia from Turkish-speaking nomads and semi-nomads. The Soviet South Caucasus did not experience such a violent policy that led to mass annihilation like in Ukraine or Central Asia. One of the main reasons is that from Moscow's perspective, the South Caucasus already fulfilled its primary um, purpose as oil and gas provider. The rural economy and uh, the increase of cotton production that was so important in Central Asia was secondary in the South Caucasus. However, Soviet modernization meant for nomads and semi-nomads mostly the end of their traditional economical existence. Furthermore, traditional contact spaces outside the official frame, like lending and leasing uh, pastures uh, between Turkish and Armenian-speaking people, were declared illegal. Even though many border issues remained unsolved, national boundaries between the Soviet republics became more and more tight, as it was bureaucratically challenging for people from one Soviet republic to get access to the resources of another republic. Thanks for your attention. <laughs>